Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, and welcome to Forever 35, a podcast about the things we do to take care of ourselves. I'm Kate Spencer. And I'm Dori Shafrir. And we're not experts. No, but we're two friends who like to talk a lot about serums. Okay, here we go. Just put on your safety belt, because here's the biz <laughs> coming at you fast and okay, furious. I'm ready. I'm ready. Our website is forever35podcast.com. Our Instagram, at forever35podcast. Okay. You can find the Forever 35 Facebook group yep. where the password is serums. Uh-huh. We have links to our favorite products at shopmy.us slash forever35. Mm-hmm. We have a newsletter that comes out twice a month-ish at forever35podcast.com slash newsletter. Sign up there. Please send us a voicemail, a text message, a song, 781-591-0390. You can email us at forever35podcast at gmail.com. We also have merch, which you can find at balancebound.co slash shop slash forever35. We have a giving circle where we are fundraising for the state of Virginia. And we're doing a live show, which you can find out more about and buy tickets at moment.co slash forever35. Wow, Kate, you really nailed that. I'm about to just give my social security number while I'm at <laughs> it. Bank account info. <laughs> Shoe size. Just oh, have it all. Gosh. Have all of it. Ooh, mm. Dory. Hello. Hey, Hello. you know what? What? I bought a hair tool oh, that I want to talk I want to talk about. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I have a real problem with the way in which the internet would have you believe it's easy to do your own hair. Like this is I'm, true. I'm fucking sick of watching TikToks of like, get ready with me and I'm going to do my hair. And then this person like perfectly quaffs their hair mm-hmm. and are like, it's so easy. Here's my tutorial. And then I try to follow it and it's, it doesn't like it, it, it doesn't happen. It's not real. Like I think tutorials are one of the greatest scams of our time. Wow, you are coming in hot. I'm tired and so I'm angry today. Look, have you? I have never f- watched a tutorial and then successfully done the thing I was tutorialed. Okay, all right. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. People are always like, I learned this from a YouTube tutorial. That it does not. That's not me. 
That is not how my life is lived. I have never fucking successfully done a cat eye, no matter how many times I, I rewatch disagree. a TikTok. I have seen your cat eye efforts, and I think they've been successful. I guess what I'm saying is like, I have, I, I just have never seen a thing that looks really good on the internet, like by a re- by a quote unquote regular person. I'm sure they're an influencer, or whatever, and been able to emulate it. Like it's you know we we under we've like intellectually understand that celebrities are presenting themselves in a way that is unattainable. But I mm. also feel like the quote unquote regular people we see online. Their their things are often also unattainable, and it's not their fault. It's just not realistic. Yeah, I don't know what this soapbox is, but I am. <laughs> my feet are glued to it right now. I mean, I'm into this. I'm into this for you. This is all to say the reason yes. I am soapboxing yes. is because I have had it trying to figure out how to f- create waves in my hair. Okay. So I just, and I think my rage at the tutorial comes from how many times I have tried to use a flat iron to wave my hair. And I just, it's never going to happen for me. Like I'm, I've just accepted the fact that this is not, it's not there. Maybe it's there for everybody else, but I'm not going to get there. My sister-in-law can do it. My sister-in-law, I was like, did you do that with a flat iron? She was like, yeah. And looked great. Not me. It's not, it's not over here. But I found a thing that, and I can't even use a curling iron, Dory. Like I cannot even, sometimes I I try a curling iron, it doesn't curl. And you know what? I'm going to get, since I'm really ranting here, I'm going to say something else controversial. Wow. Okay. I don't like the Dyson Airwrap curling thing. Okay. Okay. Doesn't work. Okay. I feel like I'm in therapy. Wow. Okay. So I don't know. I started to get like angry about this. And I was like, I'm going to try one more thing that I've never tried. A wand. I'm going to try wands. And then I went and started looking at them and everything about every wand comes with a glove because people burn themselves. I I had a wand for many years. And did you burn the T3 wand? I did burn myself. I don't, I got rid of it. I don't, I personally do not love a wand. To each their own. Because you love a wand? Well, I only have used this wand once, oh, but okay. it was so easy and effective that I was like, I think I can talk about this. Now, I want to just, with the caveat that if I use it again and I hate it, I'll let you all know. But I bought the Kristen S. Softwave mm. Titanium Pivoting Wand. Pivoting wand. Wow, wand technology has really advanced. Dory, this <laughs> wand bends in half. What? Yeah, here, I'm going to send you a link to so you can see what this wand looks like. But basically, the wand twists so it becomes almost, it, it takes on a, a right angle, if you will, if I remember geometry correctly. Okay, here's okay. what it is. <laughs> so the wand, you can twist it. So you see it and it's straight, but you can twist it and the like heated part bends down so you can hold it differently. I don't know if you just click through some of these pictures. Hmm. Okay. Let me, let me see. Huh. Do you see the pivot? Okay. Oh, I do. Wow. 
So wow. I I got okay. I ordered this in a fit of like hair curling rage. It's seventy dollars. I ordered it from Target. I got the one and a half, one and a quarter inch barrel, and I waved my hair this morning with it, and it's exact. It did exactly what I wanted it to do, mm. and I was able to use it without any having to look at any instructions. I just took it out. I turned it on, and I was like, I think I know how to use this. Wrap my hair around the thing, and it waved it, and that was the end. Like there was no drama, there was no me trying to create a wave, and it just was like a stick, straight crinkle, like nothing. It just did what I wanted it to do. Wow! And the pivot, the way you were able to literally bend this item in half and hold it in a different way, made it so much easier to use. So that is so interesting. I'm a fan. Okay. Okay. I mean, I've never seen something like this. So thank you for bringing this into my life. You've never seen a pivoting hair tool? No. I feel like I saw, I think the shark knockoff of the Dyson also does a pivot. Like I think it also, um, I think it also kind of bends, which I think is a really cool feature. Yes, it does. The shark flex style hair blow dryer does a similar thing i think i'm looking at it now it kind of looks like it does but maybe that's just the way the the like little extensions go on to it wow okay anyway oh no i'm seeing other pivoting i'm seeing other pivoting products (laughs) (laughs) looks like sharks pivot anyway anyway this is so this is where i landed so i feel like i had some success after just like so much frustration. Wow. Yeah. I, I, I'm right there with you, Kate. I just, you know, like I don't, I know social media can be really wonderful and like make things more accessible and make us feel more, you know, like we're just getting information from regular folks, but like, I also (laughs) feel like it's made it worse for Uh, me. Okay. That's fair. That is fair. (sighs) okay deep breath (sighs) all right how are you doing over there did i just set things off on kind of a heated tone well okay something really funny happened this morning was it this morning was it yesterday no it was this morning i don't know i've lost track of time um i woke up and my hair was like kind of parted in the middle okay speaking of hair like, do you see where my hair is parted right now? Okay, hold on. Oh, yeah. You never part over there. I never part over here. That's nice. Okay, Thank you. What's, what are you about to tell me? Well, it was just weird because I feel like I've tried to do a kind of... I mean, this isn't dead center because I have a cowlick, like I have a widow's peak, like dead center. Um, So it's like kind of hard to actually... But it, it's like pretty centered. And I feel like in the past, I've never been able to part my hair in the middle. Like it just hasn't worked. And then suddenly I just like woke up with my hair parted in the middle. I don't know. It's very strange. It's very weird. And you like it. Mm-hmm. I do like it. Wow. I, I don't know, Kate. Is this like the new me? Maybe. I like it. Maybe the universe is like finally like, okay, fine. Here you go. You can part your hair in the middle. I would love it if the universe like 
was also a hairstylist and they were like, I just got to get down and just show Dory the way to do it is enough with these side parts. Right? Yeah. I mean, maybe. <laughs> Look, it looks great. So just Thank roll you. with it. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, that, I mean, I, I guess I also had a hair related update today. Yeah, you but did. It's like you knew I was going to go on this. I know. I know. Rage I know. Fit. I know. It's like. It's did you strange. wear it like this out in public today? Like, did you? I did. Choose to enter the world. Okay. I did. Okay. I did. And no one gave me funny looks. No, why would they? It looks great. I mean, just kidding. <laughs> just making sure that's crazy. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, yeah. So, you know, that's pretty much everything that's going on in my world. You magically woke up with a middle part. I magically woke up with a middle part after 45 years of my hair being parted on the side. And you sometimes having bangs like you have. Yeah. Wow. You know, yeah. I mean, as everyone knows, I tried to have bangs. I guess it was pretty much exactly a year ago, I think. And it just didn't work. I don't know if my hair texture has changed like since I had a baby or like or what has happened or my lifestyle is different. But I was just not able to do bangs anymore. It just didn't work. So here we are. You know, it did work. You know, what does work. A middle this. part. A middle part. Thank you so much, Kate. Um, all right. Well, you know, we should introduce our guest because she's a repeat guest. I love a repeat. I love a repeat. Our guest today is Nicole Chung, who is the author of the new memoir, A Living Remedy, which came out at the beginning of April, and the national bestseller, All You Can Ever Know, which came out in 2018. And that was when we first interviewed her on the pod. And um, All You Can Ever Know was named a best book of the year by over 20 outlets. It was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. It just, you know, it was honored up the wazoo. She is currently a contributing writer at The Atlantic. She's a time contributor. She's a slate columnist. She's born and raised in the Pacific Northwest, and she now lives in the Washington, D.C. area. And her new book is about grief. Um, her first book was about finding her uh, her birth family and kind of about adoption. And this is more about, about grief, um, about the deaths of her parents. It's such a great book. And it's really moving and and really good. And like not it's not depressing. Did you find it depressing? <laughs> no, I mean but I love reading about grief. Yeah. Um but I I found it to be really um unifying. Mm, I don't know if that's nice the right, way of saying right it. word, but it like felt that. it just felt very it was it's an extremely like human read about mm. an experience that we most of us will go through in some way that is still not talked about and i think one thing that nicole does so well in this book is really kind of weave back and forth between the individual experience and then the systemic reasons of the way in which like illness and death and grief um the ways in which they are impacted systemically by like the structure of our society. And that I think is really fascinating. Mm. Um, and I just loved it. It's just such a thought. She's such a beautiful writer and a thoughtful writer. It's so yeah, great and a I fun person to talk to. 
Totally. Totally. Um, all right. So here is Nicole. You know, the weather's getting warmer. So I, for one, am ready to say goodbye to my jackets and my sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I'm right there with you, Kate. And you know what I actually, actually, I donned double quince the other night. I've got to tell you. Okay. Yeah. This is what's so great about quince because I feel like I have really been able to update my wardrobe like for the long haul without spending a fortune. I wore a gorgeous white tee, like a simple, perfect white cotton t-shirt from mm. quince, but it was a little chilly out. So I threw on my cashmere hoodie also from quince. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like they have basically given me a lineup of timeless pieces that I feel like keep me looking. I'm going to toot my own horn. Effortlessly chic, whether it's winter or or summer. They've got premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts from $30. You got washable silk tops, really stunning 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. Like truly... Uh, the list goes on and on. And the best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And they only work with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes, something that's very important to us. So look, If you're going on a trip, if you just need to update your summer wardrobe, get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash forever35 for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash forever35 to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash forever35. Kate, I feel like we are like barreling into summer. It's happening so fast. It is. And I feel like also with summer just come more social events. There's weddings. There's nights out. It's vacations. I mean, like all the things happening in summer. And what I love is that Honey Love has just the right thing for all those events. Feel comfortable and confident this summer with Honey Love's best-selling Super Power Short. The Super Power Short smooth shapes and lifts, giving you a flawless silhouette under any outfit with targeted compression technology that distinguishes between areas where you want more support and areas you need less compression. It's designed to work with your body, not against it. Speaking of working with your bod, the crossover bra, which I'm wearing as we speak. I wear that thing every day. I do too. Uh, It's my favorite Honey Love piece. Let me let me just tell you why. Yeah, get okay, into it. Okay, do you want to tell me why? <laughs> no, no, I was just going to say like I I I don't even need to wear it to events. I wear it like the event is every day of my life. Yes, that's such a good way of putting it. The bra gives all the support of traditional bras without using any underwires and just like sidebar, I have put on some of my old underwire bras lately and been like, "Oh god, like get this off of me." <laughs> No, thank once you. you. Once you start wearing Honey Love, you're just like, no, not yep. going back. You see also, how it could like, be. 
Yes. Also, like summer sweat under those underwires is like, ugh, the worst. Now you don't have to worry about it. Get the support you need with the comfort you deserve and treat yourself to the best bras and shapewear on the market. Save 20% off at honeylove.com slash forever. Use our exclusive link to get 20% off honeylove.com slash forever. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them and please support our show and tell them we sent you. The summer vibes are just getting started. So shape your life with Honey Love. You know, Dory, we talk to a lot of really fantastic intelligent people on this podcast. But I don't know, maybe you're like us and you want to go even deeper. Mm, I'd love to go deeper. We like to go deep. And that's not only possible with today's sponsor, but also easy to accomplish on Masterclass. Every year I get really into the classes offered and the instructors offering them. Like I'm all over the place with the things that I like on Masterclass. But this year, I am very interested in the class Redefining Feminism, which is 14 lessons from Gloria Steinem. Okay. Now, they dissect issues women face in the US and ways we can play a role in the feminist movement in our everyday lives. Look, I majored in women and gender studies in college. So, this is right up my alley. But even if you didn't, even if you're like, this is the first time I'm I hearing mean, those words. I would argue, especially if you didn't. Yes. Get into it with Masterclass because this is the year you can really learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Go from just talking about improving to actually doing the things you've been wanting to do with Masterclass. And it doesn't have to be Redefining feminism with Gloria Steinem. It can be gardening in your own garden or your yard or patio. It can be learning to cook Indian food or designing a space that you love. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors. So whether you want to master like negotiation with Chris Voss or think like a boss with Martha Stewart or maybe capture your vision through photography with Petra Collins, Masterclass has you covered. With Masterclass, you get unlimited access to intimate one-on-one -on -one classes with the world's best. And right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash F35. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash F35. That's masterclass.com slash F35. You know, one thing I think is really kind of interesting about skin, my skin, but all skin. Is that like what it needs now in my 40s is not what I needed in my 30s. Totally. Definitely not what I needed in my 20s. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But like, how are you supposed to know what your skin needs? It's hard. It's hard to know. Especially when there's just like so many products out there. The overwhelm is real. It's a struggle to even know how to get the results you want what products to start with. This is why we're super excited to partner with Apostrophe. Apostrophe is a prescription skincare company that offers science-backed medications that are clinically proven to help. I have used Apostrophe. I love it. They will pair you with a board-certified dermatologist who literally creates a personalized treatment plan for your skin. I have done this a few times now. It is so easy to do their online consultation. You upload photos. And like within a few weeks, I had done a consultation and received my treatment plan and 
my product. Amazing. And that is how I became a Tretinoin gal. I love the Tretinoin that they sent me. I love their sunscreen. Both products have been amazing on my skin. And you, Forever 35 listeners, can get a special deal from Apostrophe. You can get your first visit for only $5. That's at apostrophe.com slash forever35 when you use our code forever35. Now that is a savings of $15. I like that. This code is only available to Forever 35 listeners. So to get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash forever35 and click get started. And then use our code forever35 at sign up and you will get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. Welcome back, Nicole. We're so happy to have you back on the podcast. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be back. It's wild to think you were a guest on the show in 2018 because that's when All You Can Ever Know came out. Yes. yes. Yeah. And that was the first year we were doing Forever 35. That that just seems like it's wild how... (laughs) I was going to say it's a testament to your show, you know, Um, just that like you're you're here and going strong five years later. Oh, thank you. Well, that's so nice of you. Well, and it's a testament to your work as a writer. That you have released another book. Thank you. It it feels, I know five years is not actually, um, like it sounds like a long time, but in in book terms, it it feels as though I've been either writing or publishing or promoting for that whole time. Mm -hmm. So to me, it feels close. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you've also been experiencing so much of this during, like so much of what you talk about in A Living Remedy, your new book, you've been experiencing over these last five years, which we will get into. Um, but can may we start just by asking you if you have a self-care practice that you are currently enjoying that you might might want to share with our audience that can be look like anything for you, but what is like, what is self-care in Nicole's world? Uh, I have to give a shout out to therapy. Uh, I have been going since my father died, uh, or at least a few months after he died, I realized I'm not doing okay. Mm. I need more support. Um, And that's been just incredibly helpful. Um, You know, smaller things. I think, I think I actually do a decent job now at carving out time and protecting, I guess, what little free time I have, Um, whether that's evenings with the family or weekends. Um, a great thing I started doing for myself when my mother was sick was um, massage therapy. Mm. So, you know, every now and then I had done it before, but I found especially in like flying back and forth to see her uh, before the pandemic made that impossible. And the fact that I carry all my stress in my shoulders and neck, I was having like chronic pain, uh, which I'm kind of still dealing with. And a combination of PT and massage therapy is really what's been helpful. Um and it's, it's obviously not cheap and I'm really privileged to be able to do it, but it has like kept me like going and kept me able to work. So a variety of therapies and then just like, I don't know, some of the everyday things I think everybody does where I try to get uh, enough sleep. Um, I try to give myself space on the weekend when I'm not working. Um, I watch a lot of comfort television <laughs> um, and just, yeah, I, I, don't, I wear many more soft clothes than I did mm. before the pandemic. I have to say, like, I, I feel I've done an okay job sort of leaning into the need for like comfort and self-care in a, in a bunch of different ways. What is your comfort TV of choice? 
Oh gosh. I mean, it does tend to be somewhat escapist. Like I love, I mean, I've been watching and enjoying Ted Lasso Mm -hmm. since it's back. Um, I don't know. I really enjoy only murders in the building. So Mm -hmm. the lighter stuff, but also, um, I don't know. I watch like a lot of masterpiece (laughs) and, uh, I started watching all creatures, great and small, the remake, the reboot during the pandemic. And I don't know if either of you watch, but I call it like, basically it's anti-anxiety medication in the form of a TV show. I just start hearing the theme and my body relaxes. Um, so I do watch a lot of things like that. I think what else? My mind always goes blank when I have to come up with shows and books. Oh, I mean, I watch I watch a lot of Star Trek, which tends to remind me of my dad. Hmm. Um, whether that's older episodes that were on when I was a kid or like the recent shows like Strange New Worlds and Discovery. Um, yeah, so that's, that's like a sampling, but it just kind of depends like what's on and what's, um, you know, what I'm caught up on. This all sounds fantastic i I first just want to like pull back and just note how i love how you are both doing like physical release and also the mental care like i think those two go hand in hand especially i don't know if this has been part of your grieving experience but the ways in which we physically carry grief in our bodies Mm -hmm. that really shocked me when i first really experienced grief for the first time and i don't i don't know if that's something that that has um been part of your experience, but the physical release has was as helpful as also kind of the verbal and working it through in in therapy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I think, I mean, just in general, I carry the memories of that time, like in my body, like right now it's spring, everything's Mm -hmm. blooming. Uh, We are, May is a hard month for me. It's, it's my birthday, it's Mother's Day, and it's the month my mom died. Mm -hmm. So uh, what used to be my favorite month is kind of a really hard one now. And all I have to do is step outside. And like, physically, I am back in that time. Like, I just remember everything looks and smells and sounds the same. Uh, and I'm back in the spring of 2020, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so I think what you're saying is definitely true. And I have found like both physical and mental self-care to be really important, I guess, while grieving. Not that it's not important to everybody all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it has been like really essential for me in the last few years, especially. Well, let's talk about your new book, A Living Remedy, um, which Kate and I, Kate, I, I don't mean to speak for you, but we, no, we talked about this. Speak so for me. <laughs> I feel okay speaking for you. So um, we both really loved and it's such a beautiful book and such a wonderful companion to your first memoir. Um, Kind of for the benefit of our listeners, could you just kind of tell us a little bit about the book and I guess also how you came to see your parents' deaths as part of a larger issue of systemic inequality, um, like especially with regards to healthcare? Sure. I mean, so for readers who aren't familiar, which I assume might be most (laughs) with my first book, I mean, it was very, all you can ever know was very focused on my adoption story, uh, growing up as a transracial adoptee and my search for my birth family and what I discovered in that search. Um, I don't think of a living remedy as a sequel, but I think you're right that it's a companion story. Um, and initially, you know, the book has changed so much since I first sold it. I, at the time I sold it, my mother was not only still alive, but she did not have a terminal diagnosis yet. Oh, wow. And so I wow. envisioned this book as focusing on like my, fa- my grief from my father and also my mother, like that, that story 
it was going to be a story that was really about our shared grief mm. and, um, and about some of the things we were grappling with, which included anger and um, just deep, deep sadness about, about how and when and why we lost him, because his death was really sped by uh, financial precarity, by lack of access to healthcare for many years. Um, so I did already, even at, at, at that earlier stage, envision it as a story that was going to have to confront healthcare inequality and just it was part of the reason why we lost him yeah. at 67 but I didn't know that my mother was going to get a terminal cancer diagnosis like a few months uh, after I sold it and when she did everything changed yeah. um, and it feels a little strange to say everything changed for us because it it did but of course the world also changed because she was battling cancer had actually just started made the decision to enter hospice care when the pandemic hit. Mm. Um, and during this time I was not writing mm. and I was unsure I would ever be able to get back to the book or finish it at all. It was really not top of mind. It, it wasn't a high priority at that time, as you can imagine. But um, when I started working on it again, and it was probably a good six months after she passed away in the spring of 2020, um, it was really daunting to think about obviously writing a book about losing both of them because I had never, I had not imagined that would happen. Um, and I had not imagined that, you know, I would be trying to write about it, Mm. um, when it was still so fresh. And at the same time I was once, once I was able to write again, I think in some ways I wouldn't say it was therapeutic, right? I don't really find writing to be therapeutic or cathartic, particularly when it's for public consumption. I should say like a journal (laughs) and that is very much for me. And that is, Mm -hmm. that can be really cathartic, but like a book is something very different. Um, I was curious to see if I could write a story about my grief uh, that, that, that really took these issues head on the systemic issues that you mentioned in the book and that could maybe matter Mm. to other people, particularly other people grieving because it felt like everyone I knew was grieving at that point in the pandemic. And I mean, to some degree, it feels like we still are, um, whether we're grieving some, someone or something, it's just, there was so much loss and there was a lot of disappointment. And in some ways it can feel unacknowledged or unseen. Um, but I, I honestly didn't know I could write it till I just started again. Mm. And I started from the beginning with my mother's and my relationship really at the heart of the book in a way. Well, it always had been, but I think it obviously changed a lot from what I initially envisioned. Um, so this isn't the book I thought I would write, but um, I think just by giving myself a lot of care and time and patience, it became the book it needed to mm. be. Oh, wow. I have so many thoughts, so many like follow-up questions and things that are like standing out to me from your book. Um, I, I wanted to kind of touch on a moment um, where you, you have a friend after a few weeks after your father died, a friend calls your father's death, a common American death. And, Mm -hmm. and that has really stayed with me. And I believe in the context of the conversation, they were speaking about one of their parents also that they had both had this kind of experience and, I I interpreted it as they weren't talking about the illness. It was the way in which financial insecurity and the lack of access impacts our health Mm -hmm. and the ways in which um, 
illness has the, the outcomes of um, of illnesses. Uh, so I wanted to get your perspective on this. Like, how did you how did you hear it when your your friend kind of mentioned this, and um, how did this this idea of a common American death um, kind of resonate with you or guide you writing this kind of larger story? So it was interesting because as soon as my friend said that, um, and I didn't write this in the book, but like she kind of saw my face and apologized. Mm. I think she thought she worried she'd hurt my feelings and she didn't. Uh, it was actually like one of those light bulb moments for me, not to like put it too simplistically, but I was really struggling in the wake of my father's death. And I was wrestling with a lot of self blame because mm. in this country, yeah. you know, speaking of systemic issues, basically we're all kind of left on our own with whatever resources we have or don't have to meet these types of crises and these medical emergencies, not just when they happen to us, but when they happen to people we love. Um, there's this real focus on individual responsibility. And like, I know as an only child and only daughter, um, I felt a lot of that and a lot of self-blame for like what I wasn't able to do. Like I could not save my father. Um, and I've been wrestling with that for weeks. And when she said it's such a common American death, it wasn't that I hadn't thought about the systemic failures. It wasn't that I hadn't thought about the many points at which my parents tried and failed to access some kind of safety net, whether that was healthcare or uh, other forms of like public assistance. But it was just a crystallizing moment. And I think it actually helped me begin to stop blaming myself for these things that none of us really had control over in the end, because unless you are fantastically wealthy in this country um, and, you know, and you live maybe near your parents or can move them to you and everybody is insured, like mm -hmm. unless all of these things fall into place, like this is how we're forced to weather emergencies. This is the system yeah. we're left with. I knew I'd grown up in this family where like it was depend, like our, our stability was dependent, like on everything going right and I saw what happened when things began to go wrong. But there was still so much responsibility I felt um, as my parents' only child, you know, as someone who loved them, of course, and, and wanted things to be okay. Um, so that moment was actually huge for me. And I don't know if it's when I started thinking about this book, but I know when I was working on the proposal, it kept coming back to me. So it was just a really clarifying moment in terms of figuring out kind of what this book would be and what issues it had to tackle. You know, it, I knew it wasn't just a grief story, even though it is very much that. Um, there was this other part that I really couldn't avoid, even if I wanted to, because it was bound up so closely in my grief for my father, in my mother's grief for him. Um, it was going to be something that, you know, I would need to talk and write about. Okay, well, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. You know, we have been delving more and more into the topic of our skin as we get older and how we treat it and how we love it. Because look, as I'm learning in my mid-40s, as you get older, you deal with new things when it comes to your skin. Not that they're bad, they're just new. You know what I mean? Like I am now just discovering creppiness, Dory. Mm. Okay. Which is okay. I know. visible on my <sighs> neck and chest. Luckily, it's a thing. It's a thing. Luckily, OneSkin, our sponsor today, knows all about things like crappiness. And I'm not overly concerned with aesthetics, but like I do just want to keep my skin healthy as I age. Totally. I love their topical supplements. They really 
help your skin feel, I don't want to say younger, but just vibrant, Mm. refreshed. They combine tissue engineering, data analysis, and cutting edge longevity science to literally create the world's most effective product to help with skin aging. I am particularly fond of their face topical supplement. It's essentially a moisturizer, but it has their Mm -hmm. proprietary OSO1 peptide to really help with all the parts of our skin that are exposed to environmental damage. You can use it on your face, your hands, your neck. I know here Mm -hmm. where we live in Los Angeles, our hands, we're driving, that sun is coming at us at all times. OneSkin believes the Amen. purpose of skincare is not just to improve how we look, but to optimize our skin biology so that it is more resilient to the aging process. They really create next level skincare. OneSkin is the world's first skin longevity company. By focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, OneSkin keeps your skin looking and more importantly, acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code OVER50 at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code OVER50. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them and please support our show and tell them we sent you. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. You know, you alluded um, a little bit earlier in our conversation to... um, having anger. And I'm wondering, could you talk a little bit about how to navigate grief when you also feel anger? That's such a good question. And it's such a hard one. Um, You know, and I know it's probably different for everybody. In my case, I expected anger to be part of grief. I mean, everyone talks about it as a stage, right? Um, right? But I hadn't expected to feel so much anger with myself. And then mm-hmm. even when that began to lessen, I'm still living with this rage um, at the systems that failed my parents. And not not just because they failed them, but because they failed so many and they continue to every day. We have seen every day of this pandemic. Um, and like, that's just a truth that you can't get away from. Uh, so it is hard because like, I don't see it we don't see the change. Like we don't see people getting what they need. We don't see people getting the support and the resources they need and not being, you know, betrayed or abandoned by these systems. And it is, it's extremely hard, I think, to process as part of, as part of my grief. I don't want to say it helps to know that it's a common story because of course I wish it weren't, but at the same Mm -hmm. time, like just realizing that this is a systemic problem in this country. Um, you know, that we of course weren't the first to experience it and won't be the last. Um, it's not reassuring at all, but it has helped me see again, like these things are not my parents' fault. You know, I'm not responsible for what they were up against. We, it is still like our, it can be our job and our, our responsibility and our, 
our privilege even to get to try to take care of ourselves and our loved ones despite these failing systems. And I suppose what I'm left with is I don't see their story as hard as it is as some Mm -hmm. like American tragedy. You know, that's not how I think about their lives. When I think of my parents, I think of their story as one of resistance and one of resilience and one of love. Um, And so I try to remember that too. That is part of this. Even if, even if I wish that things had gone very differently for both of them, even if I wish I'd been able to do more, you know, I know their story is also more than a tragedy. And, and, and the same is true of, of everyone who gets sick or dies in this country without the help they need and deserve. Mm. Yeah. I appreciate, I, I appreciate you saying that because I do think I, I know personally I can get very bogged down in, in my own anger about the ways in which the healthcare system and the inequity on all, you know, on so many different systemic levels impacts not just our survival, but like our access to grief in many ways. Right. Um, and that's something I kind of was left thinking about a lot in reading your your book is is that grief is this really vital thing that we have a right to access. And oftentimes um, I feel like the kind of uh, systemic issues prevent us from getting there, you know, or it takes almost longer to get to our grief. Or not, I mean, we can well, grieve at true. the same time, but there's a lot of obstacles that are set up in our way. Yeah, no, that's very true. I mean, I have this line in the book and I didn't know it was going to be quoted so often, but I keep seeing it show up in coverage. It's just like, um, after my father's death, you know, I'm back at work after a week and trying to like keep all the balls in the air and also do all the parenting things and the volunteer things. And the, the line is something like, I'm an expert at grieving under capitalism. Um, Ooh, yeah. And, the, yeah. and the truth is that was, it was harder than I even realized at the time. It was like destroying me really in many ways to keep going to not have time or space to grieve. And in a very different way, I remember feeling that when my mother was sick and there was, of course, this focus on helping her and helping her manage her care, but also anticipatory grief because I knew she was dying. Like I knew we weren't going to have much longer. Mm. And I wanted, I remember wanting to take like family leave and realizing like, there's no way I could possibly take unpaid leave right now because I was also financially supporting my mother. Um, She couldn't work and you know, social security was not going to cover all of her living expenses. And so I was, I was so grateful to be able to do that for her. But I, I mean, there was no way for me to take a break, even as managing her care became like kind of another job. Um, And I just remember feeling like, again, this is something I'm just going to have to kind of like, it's like you white knuckle through, but I knew it wasn't good or healthy. I knew it wasn't ideal. It wasn't yeah. what I would have chosen, but it was our reality, you know? Um, I, I read a a piece you wrote for, I think it was Harper's Bazaar, about kind of allowing your children to feel sadness. Um, and it really, like, it really spoke to me. <laughs> um, and I, I was, I was mm. hoping we could talk a little bit about kind of why is it important to allow them to have those feelings and why does it, kind of raise all these complicated feelings um, in us. Yeah. So I, I started thinking about that, that Harper's piece because 
um, I have a teenager who asked to read my book and she's read a lot of things that I've written, but I found myself hesitating Mm -hmm. and I realized it was, it was because there's this one particular chapter where I write about like my deep depression after my Mm -hmm. father died. And I was just like, I I don't know, like that's going to be so much for her to read about. Not that she doesn't know about depression, Mm -hmm. not that she doesn't know about mental health struggle. It's something we've talked about a lot. Um, I think especially during the pandemic, but like to take it and make it very personal and like to read about your mother being so despondent. I I was really worried about that. Um, And it made me think about and realize I do have this tendency as a parent, despite, despite my better intentions, like when they're sad, I find myself wanting to, of course, like comfort and like maybe sometimes offer advice or just think of something that we can do together. Like I want to, or I want to reassure them. Um, and like that, I understand that's like, maybe it's like an understandable instinct. I think it's when a lot of parents feel that urge to comfort and protect, but there are so many things in this world that they already know about and are already dealing with that we can't protect them from. Um, and what they do need to know is it's okay to have their feelings, even really like hard feelings, Um, and that, that isn't something they need to protect us or other people from. So that's kind of where that essay came from was just like, I think I knew this intellectually again, thank you therapy, but like having it actually play out in my, you know, with my kids is hard because I still, especially after three years of pandemic, like, of course you want to comfort, of course you want to protect and you want to assure them it's all going to be all right. But that's just not something that is always true. Um, what is true and what's valid are, is how they feel. So that's something that I think I'm still like really working on as a parent. It's just balancing that like urge to protect with honesty, like emotional honesty. Yeah. I mean, that, that feels like one of the fundamental <laughs> challenges of parenthood. Yeah, sure. It also reminds me of a, a moment in your book where you, it kind of dawns on you that your mom is trying to protect you yeah as she's dying and and how um just that parallel of like being a parent and being the child um and have having those things kind of happen those roles play out simultaneously um that's in, in really profound i mean that i just it sounds sim- it almost sounds like you were experiencing similar instincts at the same time um from your positions as a parent. And that's just, I don't know, blows my mind. It's, it's one of those things that I thought would be an important thing to include in the book is, you know, as you grow up as a child, you sometimes step into more of a parenting or at least a caregiving role with your own parents, but you are still their child. And it actually can be a very hard adjustment for them and for you to like figure out a new dynamic. Um, And with my mom and me, we were still muddling our way through after my dad had died. Like she was diagnosed like a year, year and a half after he passed away. Uh, And we hadn't yet really figured out what that relationship was going to be when she got sick. So we're trying to figure out and have these hard conversations and like talk about hard but necessary things, right? Like her advanced directives and her final wishes and like, her will, like she, these, these things that like, of course, neither one of us wanted to talk about, but, um, but like, it was still like so important to try while we could. Um, and it was very, it was a really hard thing to negotiate. And I do think like one time 
one of her closest friends in Oregon said to me like, well, you're still our kids, no matter how old you get, and we still want to protect you. And I realized that was some of what she was doing. Some of it was being overwhelmed. Some of it was her own, you know, fear. And that's totally understandable. Um, But some of it was like, I think her not wanting me to be the person who had to deal with it, even though I was the one who was left. And I was the only person really who could deal with some of it. Um, And I wanted to be able to do that for her. But I think it was hard for her to have me step into that role, like a new role when she still saw me fundamentally as her child. Yeah. Yeah, that is really, that kind of shift in relationship is really challenging to navigate. And I I have a lot of peers who have found that kind of conversation with their parents to be really challenging. You know, a lot of our parents don't want to have these conversations about advanced directives and what happens and Mm -hmm. how we're going to, you know, their finances and all these things. And I, 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 it helps hearing that perspective, like thinking of it from their perspective, because um, I only see it as the, you know, the adult child now, but this is tough stuff to navigate. It's really difficult. I mean, I don't know if this is getting too in the weeds, but like, I mean, I tried, I remember when I was trying to convince my father to have advanced directives and he was very ill for years. It was extremely important that he have those. Um, I tried to like set an example. I was like, look, I'm, I'm doing my advanced directives. Like I'll update them later. You can always update them. But I was like, this is a thing that is good to do even before you get sick or before you get old. Like it's important for, for mm-hmm. anyone. And, um, I don't know. I did the same thing with like making a will. He did not want to do that. <laughs> um, it's not that I, I was also doing it because I, I genuinely think it's a good thing, but I was trying to kind of show this isn't just because you're right. sick or yeah. I'm not trying to like interfere or nag, but like, I think these are good things for anybody to be doing and better now than like, if you do get some kind of terminal diagnosis, you know, um, as I saw that later with my mother, it was just really hard to have those discussions when, we were living with this knowledge that she was going to die soon. Um, and I kept thinking how it would never have been easy, but God, it would have been easier like five years earlier or 10 yes. years earlier to have these things done. Um, but, you know, she she was an adult and it was her decision to engage with that or not. You know, I understand. It was just, it was really hard to have to do it under duress, you know? Yeah, I'm just thinking about that. There's that really poignant moment after your grandmother dies and your mother is kind of like, I wasn't ready for her to go. And your grandmother was 96. I mean, you know, she was objectively old. Right. Um, But I think that was just, that just really struck me um, because, you know, your mother by that point was pretty sick um, Mm -hmm. and was also like mourning her mother and, yeah, it was it was it was really it was really powerful. I went through a similar experience, Nicole, where my mom my mom's mom died six weeks before she did, at like ninety two or ninety three, and was like mourning her. And I was just it's like such a fucked up thing to watch your parents yes. grieve their parents while you're grieving your parent who's dying, and like yes. you're like what <laughs> what is happening? But I think that actually is. That must that must happen more than I think I've I've realized. Um, I remember why. I remember telling her, you know, she was like, um, "I guess this is how you feel," and I was like, 
um, you know, she, she was 96. Like I'm way more pissed, I think, than, yes. than you are. I mean, not to compare, it's obviously like a very deep grief that you're feeling and I get that and I, I share it. But I mean, the other thing about losing like a grandparent right before a parent is that it's very hard for me to separate. Um, sometimes I feel like I didn't get to grieve my grandmother mm. at all because yeah, totally. I was entirely wrapped up in my mother at that time. And, um, and, but it felt so wrong because my grandmother helped raise me. We were very close. And, and yet because she died four weeks before my mom, and also because she died in April, early April, 2020, yeah. when we couldn't have any funerals, nobody could even be present at her burial. Like that Ugh. was the stage of the pandemic we were in. Yeah. Um, my mother and her sister got to visit her grave after and lay flowers. And that was, that was all they could do. Um, and I just feel like there's all this unprocessed um, grief that I know I feel or felt, but like, it just, it's impossible to separate it from the grief from my mother. And it was something we didn't get to experience as a family together because of the pandemic. Mm. I, I, I I, I don't, I want to be conscious of your time, but I did want to just ask some, I wanted to just note something that I really stood out to me in the book and just kind of get your thoughts and the experience. Um, you were discussing your parents' faith is, is a big part of their story, I think. And I thought it was really interesting how you noted how, even though your relationship to your own faith and religious upbringing had changed, how it could reemerge and reappear in ways that you didn't expect or didn't even like plan on having almost like it was laying innate and then would kind of pop up. Um, and that's, I think that must be something that is very relatable for many people. Um, and I just wanted to hear a little bit more about that experience for you. Sure. So, I mean, there's this moment during my father's funeral and burial, um, which because it was 2018 and not a pandemic, like I was able to physically be there. Um, and I mean, my mother was incredibly devout and she said something to me. I was crying when we went up to say final goodbyes. And she said, you know, don't despair. This is our hope in the resurrection. And like, I was not at that point had not been a regular church goer for, for some years. I have a pretty complicated, sometimes fraught relationship with my childhood religion, but it's still, I cannot deny there is like some sort of hold it will always have on me. I think because I associate it so strongly with my mother and how she raised me, like her teaching me to pray the rosary when I was growing up and her saying, like, if you're ever anxious, you just pray Hail Marys. <laughs> I, I still do that, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and like, I don't know, these things are just deeply ingrained. It's like somewhere deeper even like than it almost doesn't matter what I believe, you know, because it's so ingrained. But um, yeah, I don't know. So I was... I was just a little bit surprised. I can't pretend I know like where my parents are. I was not comforted in the way my mother was after my father died. Like she was just very sure, right? That he was in heaven and she would be with him. And I was so glad she felt that. And I didn't know how I felt, but there was still like her faith was somehow still a comfort to me, if that makes sense. Um, and I realized like, if I could, I'd really want to be as sure as she is. Like, I, I understand why, why it's a comfort. And I guess another reason I wanted to write about it in the book, despite my general trepidation about writing about religion at all, I just feel I don't have any answers. <laughs> um, 
was because I saw how much their like small religious community really meant to them. You know, they stepped in and became their family in so many ways. They were able to be there at times I couldn't be. Um, they, everything from like, when I wrote in the book, when my father's mobility declined, it was a parishioner who was a contractor who built, like made their home accessible. They like, he built ramps and put in railings and, um, the same person made my father's casket after he passed away and like, wouldn't let my mother pay him. You know, everybody like brought a, a dish to share at his reception. When my mother was dying, like she was visited really faithfully by some of her best friends um, and her priest and, you know, everyone would come masked, but they came and it was, it was just hugely important. Um, and I, it would have been so much harder for her and for me if, if she hadn't had that community. So, um, yeah, I, nobody referred to what they were doing as like mutual aid, but mm. I mean, that's kind of what it was. Even when my parents were struggling financially, it was like their friends who took up like a collection for them, um, because nobody had a lot and nobody had what they needed, but everybody had a little to give. Mm. Um, that was like very moving to me. So I was really so thankful that even though I couldn't be with her due to the pandemic, she was never alone. Um, unless she wanted to be, you know, in her final weeks. So I, I'm, I, I felt it wouldn't have been right to not acknowledge that and what her community did for her. Mm, wow. This is such an important book. Um, and so personal with your story, but I think just connects to what so many of us have experienced and will yeah. experience. Um, so it really, I know it really resonated with both of us, Nicole. So thank you for writing it. It's really wonderful. Thank you both so much for spending time with it and inviting me back. I'm, I'm really glad we got to talk today. Likewise. Likewise. Um, where can folks find you and find your work? Um, it, A Living Remedy is out now, mm -hmm. so they can get that anywhere they get books as well as your first memoir. Um, but where else can we, can we hear from you? Uh, so I am still on Twitter, although the reason why, I mean, it just seems stranger to me every day, um, <laughs> but, uh, so I'm on Twitter and Instagram and like pretty much every other platform actually at the same handle, which is Nicole S J Chung. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's, those are probably the best places to connect with me online. Uh, oh, I'm also in the middle of a book tour. So uh, if people want to check my website for upcoming events, you know, I would love to see folks at in-person or virtual events. Well, thank you so much. It was really great to get to talk to you again. Thank you. This is my pleasure. Well, you know, I really, I really loved our conversation. Me um, too. And I, and I, I love, I don't, I mean, I guess it's weird to say I love talking about grief, but I'm just so glad these conversations exist, like that these, that people are writing these books and and reading and receiving them. And mm -hmm. it just feels like even like 16 years ago when my mom died, I don't remember these kind oh, of books yeah. existing. So I'm just so yeah. grateful. Hmm. Well, I did intend this week to sit in the outdoor world. And how did that go? I did do it. Oh. I did read a book outside. Okay. Look at yeah. you. You know what? It was great. And that's now it's going to rain tomorrow, but that's okay. I'm still 
And I also went through the other thing that I'm trying to do is also like remember to care for my outdoor space. So I went and filled on my bird feeders mm. and I watered my outdoor plants mm. and I just kind of said hi to everybody mm. on the patio. I love that. And this week, my intention is something that just kind of happened organically yesterday. Okay. While I was playing, I was playing pickleball. Okay. In my, I take a, like a a lesson with three Mm -hmm. other people once a Mm -hmm. week and I love Mm -hmm. it. And I just decided as I was playing yesterday, I decided I'm good at this. Like I just decided that's going to be how I think of myself now is that I'm good at this because I am in every corner of my life filled with negative self-thought. Like I'm a big negative self-talker. I'm a big putter downer. I'm a bit yeah. big self-deprecator. Look, we've dealt with this before. And I was kind of like, what if I changed my perspective and it wasn't like I'm new and learning and like, I don't know what I'm doing and right. I'm going to make a lot of mistakes to like... I'm good at I'm good at pickleball. Like, oh, I made yeah. a mistake. Oh well, uh, it doesn't matter. I mean, like, I'm good at it, so whatever. Yeah. I don't know. I Dory, I had this weird moment where I was like, Oh this my is gosh, just a decision I've made. I'm good at this. I, so now I'm going to try to apply that to other parts of my life. I love that. I'll keep you posted on how it goes because dot 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 seems like easier said than done, but I'm excited to try. I'm excited for you. This is so cool. All right. You've been decluttering up a storm. That was where your intention landed last week. Talk to me yes. about where you are. Okay. So it's going really well. I did get, I got like a rolling three drawer plastic thing to keep like art supplies and some other stuff in. And I, I don't know if I love it. I might be rethinking what I put in that corner and how I how I have him store um, some like art stuff and some other stuff. I've seen some other storage solutions that I think might work better. So I'm going to explore that, but it's going really well. I think he's much happier. Um, I'm going to tackle his bedroom this week, but that is not my intention. So this is airing. On May 10th, which is my sister's birthday. Happy birthday, Karen. Oh, happy birthday, Karen. And um, my birthday is airing. My birthday's airing. My birthday is <laughs> the day before our next episode airs. So our our my birthday is 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 in this week, within this week of intentions. Um and, uh, you know, I'm just going to try to kind of like roll with it. How are you feeling? Like, how is the birthday stuff feeling? Well, I'm throwing myself a little party. Mm-hmm. And I'm feeling good about that. I believe you're coming. I'm going to try to make it. I feel like <sighs> I can just see what else is on my calendar oh and my then decide if that's God. like where I want to be. Wow. Okay. Um, I'm there with goes. bells on. Yes. With big old bells. Big old bells. Um, so yeah. So I'm I'm looking forward to celebrating my birthday with some friends. Um, Henry also knows that it's my birthday coming up. Oh no, that's gonna be so cute. Which okay. is really cute, and he loves birthdays, and they like they like play birthday at school, and like. <laughs> 
<laughs> they're like very into birthdays. Um, so I'm curious to see like how that goes. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's that's what I got going on this week. Oh, well, happy birthday to you, my friend. Thank you so much. I am Thank excited so much. to celebrate you. Thank you. And of course, we're going to be celebrating you at our live show. Oh, yeah. Duh. I hope everyone can come. Let's not forget. Let's not forget. We're going to we're going to birthday toast Dory. Oh, thank you, Kate. That's exciting. <sighs> All right. Well, Forever 35 is hosted and produced by me, Dory Shafrier and Kate Spencer. Produced and edited by Sam Junio. Sammy Reed is our project manager. Our network partner is ACAST. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. Bye.